0: By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. I couldn't find a quote that provided the right jumping off point for this episode. So I'm going to risk vanity and quote myself from 2022's Sanctions 101 episode. Sanctions are how you help fight a war without firing bullets. So one year on, how has this strategy played out? What actions have governments and regulators taken? What has the impact been on practitioners, their processes, and most importantly, on their people? To help us break this down, we've invited Hera Smith, who for over a decade has built and run sanctions programs for financial institutions in both the US and the EU. In the past few months, she's joined Moody's Analytics KYC unit. As an industry practice lead and as our resident sanctions expert. Well, welcome, Hera. Thanks so much for for joining us. How are you today?
1: Doing well. How about you? How are you?
0: Yeah, very well. I'm excited. First time we've got you to to join us since joining Moody's at, at KYC decoded. So excited for the conversation, and I know you've got a lot of great experience around sanctions in particular. So um, hopefully, it will will help our listeners sort of contextualise. The last 12 months and, and maybe give them a, a few pointers on what they might want to prepare for moving forward. As I mentioned there, we're, we're here to look back on the impact of the sanctions on Russia over the past year and particularly how that applies to the world of KYC and AML sanctions professionals. But just in case, because I know there are a few people that don't necessarily fall into that category that occasionally listen to this podcast, um, not my mum, unfortunately, but <laughs> she still doesn't know <laughs> what I do. Um but for anyone that has been living under a rock, could you just maybe give a really quick recap of, you know, what happened last February and and what that has led to?
1: Sure, no problem. So, to start from the start, uh, I mean, it, I think we need to st- take a step back and start from a few years ago when Russia, you know, invaded Crimea and took over Crimea and I think that's when the Russian sanctions started becoming more and more complicated and now fast forward a few years from then, in 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine, and that has definitely escalated the amount of sanctions that have been imposed on Russia thus far.
0: And you mentioned there was a, a initial package of sanctions, but those have, have grown. What has this specifically meant for the sanctions lists as a, as applied to Russia? You know, do you have any sort of stats in terms of the added volume that that's on these lists now, or, or you know, or any other sort of context you could give? So from what it was before the invasion of Ukraine to now, um, what's been sort of the meaningful change to the lists?
1: Yeah, I would say there has been a large number of entities that have been added on, more than a thousand, both in terms of natural persons, like actual people, and of course, entities. And that means that from an operational perspective, there's a lot of entities that are also considered sanctioned by extension because they are owned or controlled 50% or more by the sanctions person, which makes it very complicated because there's a lot of hidden risk behind this.
0: Yeah. Okay. So so you've got more volume, which naturally leads, I assume, to more work. What's the expectation being on practitioners, right? So you've got the, the governments and regulators that create these sanctions and update the lists and, and issue the guidance. But for those that then have to sort of execute against them, heads of sanction, heads of AML, MLROs, depending on the title, depending on the org, you know, what have you seen from there? Obviously, obviously you were a practitioner for most of your career and have recently joined us here, thankfully, at, at Moody's to help our, our customers. But um, yeah, what, what have you observed change since all these updates have happened?
1: Uh, it's been so busy out in the banking world, which is where I was working before with the with with these Russian sanctions coming out, I would say that the workload has increased tenfold, maybe a hundredfold, and it's led to a lot. It's led to a lot of uh, a work, maybe burnout and fatigue in terms of sanctions. At the same time, it's really work that calls to a lot of people because they're, they're, they are they're want to do something about the, the conflict and they think this is one way that they can contribute. But at the same time, there's limits as to how much one person can do or handle. And just with the amount of sanctions that have come out, the novelty of the sanctions, it's been a lot of work trying to figure out how to make it work. So say, for example, one of the packages came out and said that there was going to be a deposit restriction of 100,000 euros on Russian nationals and entities. And this is a very new kind of sanctions because we've never implemented something like this before. So how do you make sure that whatever Russian customers you have don't go above a specific threshold? Like, how do you implement that from a technical perspective? Sure. Yeah. Yeah and how do you do a look back review to figure out if anybody in your books has anything over a 100,000 euros yeah so it's it's been really tricky
0: yeah that's a pretty specific one what i might do is we'll put a pin in that cuz i want to come back around to it um but you you talk about the burnout the sort of exhaustion i've certainly heard that at certain conferences speaking to other other practitioners it's just been sort of an unprecedented workload and sort of stress level
1: yeah
0: death you mentioned the you mentioned your 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 answer there around the—it's not just the names on the list; it's also what's happening in terms of who, sanctions by extension, ownership, control. The, these concepts. So, if I was just to say what's going on with ownership and control, could you maybe you know take that as a a starting point as a sort of essay question and and discuss a little bit? Maybe we can go back and forth. We we did cover some of this last year with um, Andreas, who came on the the uh, the sanctions mini series we did, but. I think since then it's become more and more important, so I would love to get your take.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of changes in this sphere, but initially what regulators would look at is the ownership aspect. Anything owner controlled or owned 50% or more in the aggregate is considered sanctioned by the US authorities, and this concept was also adopted in the EU in that the EU is also looking At aggregated ownership now, meaning to say if you and I are sanctioned entities and we own 30% each, that would be more than 50%. And so the company we own would also be considered sanctioned by extension. However, in the UK, instead of looking at the aggregated ownership um, of a company, they instead looked at control. If, say, you alex is a sanctioned entity and you are able to control me who owns company a then in effect that company a is considered sanctioned because you have control over that company indirectly however i mean that's great in theory but in practice that's really hard to implement Mm -hmm. especially since the definition of control is so subjective and rather vague and so it puts companies or like banks or implementers in between a rock and a hard place, because if they mistakenly freeze something because they thought that X had control over it, then they are on the hook for that and they could be sued by their customer. On the other hand, if they interpret the regulation wrongly and they didn't freeze it, then they're going to be on the hook for violating sanctions. So Mm. it's really hard for a lot of practitioners in that aspect.
0: Would it be fair to say that it takes it away from a, a tick box, you know, or a box you have to tick, probably a better way to say it. And it makes it more of a, you must make your and demonstrate your best effort when you go for the control, as opposed to just a, a number threshold.
1: I would say so. It definitely made it more complex in that you're not only looking at, you know, 30% plus 30 equals 60. You have to look at relationships like, the, is this the wife of... The sanctioned person and is this the father-in-law and then why is he suddenly divesting ownership and sending and giving it to a child that's one year old
0: mm, i imagine they sort of said like it's very challenging to sort of figure this out but it probably means you need more data than you've ever had to get yeah and you also i mean some of that i don't know I, despite the advances in a uh, chat GPT, i don't know if the ai is at the point where it could figure out that those subjective calls yet. So I imagine you need some tech, but ultimately you need people to sort of be able to read, investigate and, and sort of understand the nuances.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely helpful to have data on, you know, relationships between people as well as also have a good escalation procedure internally so that when you're not sure or, or you know, you, you need somebody higher up to find off on it just because of the mm. legal liability attached to it, then you have a good process in place internally.
0: Yeah. And have you noticed what what I used to see when I was uh, working particularly with operations professionals is they'd, they'd hear there's a sanctions and PEPs task and they'd think, right, I've just got to do those two things and there's these lists and I'd check it and they'd try to make it into this very sort of defined flowchart, if you like. Do you feel there's been sort of a change or more understanding now of sanctions professionals who've probably been saying, no, actually, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot of uh, subjective calls. There's more data we need than just the lists. Have you noticed a change in the conversation internally to banks through through your network and and, people that you talk to?
1: Yeah, I would say definitely before people thought, oh, you just screen against the list and then you're done. Um, now they have a better understanding of what sanctions is. In fact, you know, you talk to people on the street, they now know what sanctions is as opposed to maybe a year and a half ago when nobody really knew what it was. They, they I think there's been enough talk in the news about cutting some banks off from the Swift network that they understand it's not just about, you know, screening against the list.
0: Yeah, no makes total sense. I think I mentioned the human element there and on this podcast and I think at most conferences, there's always a lot of talk about data and tech, tech and data, you know, you go around and around because you're always looking for the next thing or the sort of thing that can maybe change an industry. But there is sort of this element, that you, we sometimes forget to talk about the people um, that actually need to make those final decisions and, you know, regulators want decisions made by people because they can be held accountable. How, how, much training do you think it takes? How, how long into someone's career do you think if they started out in KYC, at you know at year zero, um, how long do you think until they could really be ready to conduct these sort of deep sanctions investigations and understand these these elements of control, these elements of um, of ownership in in the aggregate, particularly with very obfuscated, if that's if I'm pronouncing that word correctly, ownership structures.
1: It really depends on the person, I would say. Mm. But generally, I think there's around a six months at least basic training mm. to get to the point where they're comfortable doing decisions around this. Uh, I would say that with the Russian sanctions, there's definitely been a higher learning curve for a lot of mm. people just because of the amount of work that's coming in and the lack of resources and experts in this area.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if there's an answer to that, right? Because it's as you say, it just takes time. You can't sort of make people learn faster. They can they can only learn at the pace that they can, you know, concentrate, right? And everyone's got their got their limit. But yeah. If people if banks in particular, but also corporates who are gonna look at their supply chains now even more carefully, aren't able to get the right people in, then then that it's it's a really hard thing to keep up with and you might have to start, you know, either de risking your business or, you know, potentially take undue risk, which we I don't think anyone wants to do, but so as you say, it's a rock and a hard place. Sometimes it's probably worth us being empathetic to to people that are running these programs and trying to trying to keep up.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think another thing that they have to take into account is the background of those specific people that are being trained. Do they have any prior banking experience or any prior KYC related experience? Because that definitely helps. Legal experience helps as well because you know if you're analyzing legislation, then. You want to have somebody, you know, if you have somebody who's familiar with that, then they can transfer that sort of way of thinking yeah. into this space.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people that do come from a legal background or sometimes an accountancy background. I think that find themselves in compliance and then find they love it or or financial crime, anti financial crime, I should say. So yeah, I think that would be interesting moving forward. And we're actually going to do a, a future episode on sort of the the KYC or AFC professional of the future. So sort of how is that profile going to change now that it's more established? But We'll leave that for another day. Um, I want to come back around to the packages of sanctions, right? As you, as you said, there's, been, you know, there was an initial package, but that since then there's been lots of iteration, particularly in the EU. Um, and I think when we talked offline, we're coming up to the ninth package, which I think is being released in February. We're, we're recording at the end of, end of January here. That right,
1: yeah, the nice package has been released, but oh, they're okay. talking about releasing a 10th package oh, in okay. February around right. the time of the anniversary. However, we're not quite sure if that is going to happen. I hear that Hungary has signaled its opposition to it, so okay? We'll see how it goes,
0: yeah. So, watch this space. But the the point remains there's been a lot of iteration for a, a one year period, so, more, yes. more than we've ever seen. I, I i you know, I'd venture to guess so. Could you maybe talk through how the focus of the sanctions has changed with each package? And we don't have to go one by one, but sort of the the timeline, right? Like, So there's the initial package, which you, you said was maybe didn't go as far as you thought it might. But then you mentioned at some other point, there's been this sort of new restriction around sort of how many euros someone can have deposited if they're a Russian national. Could you maybe just talk through how the focus has changed as the packages have evolved?
1: Let's see. Oh, there's there's so many different focuses that each package has hmm. um so it's it's a little hard to talk uh touch on everything so i think i'm just gonna pick out the ones that i think are most interesting at least to yeah.
0: You. yeah maybe the yeah. highlights or the ones that are a novel because i think people are used to powerful people get added to a list because you uh-huh. try to create political pressure but but what else has happened that maybe is um changed how practitioners have to operate
1: yeah well let's see i think the most Interesting one that generated a lot of headlines back in the day is the the fact that they were hesitating whether or not to cut off the Russian banks and Belarusian banks from the SWIFT network. And after much public outcry, the you know the EU as well as the U.S. and U.K. decided to. Do that. So the US actually cut them off from the SWIFT network. Um, A lot of banks, Russian banks, can't send payments through to other banks in the global financial system at this point. Another one that's interesting, as I mentioned earlier, is the 100,000 euro. Deposit restriction for Russians, and that has definitely been a major headache for a lot of banks because it's hard enough to have to deal with the increased workload, but also try to figure out how to implement a novel kind of sanctions is another headache. You know, having to deal with IT and then having to make sure you interpret the regulations correctly, all the while trying to deal with all the different escalations Mm. that's happening. That's been a problem. And I think that a lot of banks de- decided to go a couple of ways. One is to create internal controls to make sure that they get alerts or that they have manual processes in place, if not you know, automatic, mm. um, to in order to address this issue. Another way that they've gone is to leverage external data to make sure that they don't have any customers that are actually owned by Russian or that are actually Russian companies.
0: Yeah. I- you, are you aware? Is there, without naming any names, is there a way of doing this that you have heard has been very effective versus you know others that may may have struggled more? You know, I'm I'm wondering in my head have, have certain organisations maybe set up sort of uh, specialized teams that are able to react very quickly. I don't know if that would work, but um, I'm just wondering if there's been different approaches taken and if your network has let you know what, what's worked, what hasn't.
1: Ah, uh, well, let's see. It, I think a lot of them have taken the mental route of you know, manually reviewing their mm. KYC data and scouring them for Russian-related issues. I think the most effective one is to actually just ingest external data mm. and then screen that against your client base. But of course, you also have to cover and make sure that there's uh, internal controls in place above that.
0: Sure. So going slower to be more precise is one way. And then the other is to sort of, uh, you know, arm yourselves with more tools
1: Um and, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think it, they had such a short amount of time to implement this that they had to go the manual route at that point in time. But going forward, they should look at automating this. I'm sure this is not going to be the last time that something like this happened.
0: Sure. sure. Let's talk a little bit about the tools and the and the methods. Uh, I don't really want to talk about any products out there on the market, whether they're Moody's or, or elsewhere, but what are the things that that practitioners or teams need? Do you think you talk about date, external data, but like, what should that data have in it that would help them, you know, come to these decisions faster or partly automate the process? You know, let, let's start with that. And then we can talk about technology after.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, when we're talking about these kinds of things, it's important to have the data within your own company cleaned up first. Right. And so it's really important to digitalize your KYC processes so that your data's are sorted really nicely into different buckets. Then it's really easy to then screen your customer base or any data in it for any sanctions or even AML or, or PEP related issues um, from A technological or vendor standpoint, I think it's important to have a good ownership and control data set in place with everything that's happening in the control aspect, as I said, Mm. and of course, the increasing amount of companies that are trying to evade sanctions, it's important to have proper tools in place. Say for example, one trend we've seen is the fact that instead of setting their ownership at 50% or beyond, a lot of sanctioned entities have gone below to 40 and even 20, 25%. So that's why it's so important to have tools and data sets in place that can provide you information, ownership information, not just at 50%, but mm-hmm. off 2025 and also several layers down as much as possible.
0: So so not just providing the list and saying these are above, these are below, but actually providing the the numbers, providing the, the ability for you to run the maths however you, you want to do it. Is that fair summary?
1: Yeah. Ability to set the threshold however low or high you want it to be at.
0: Okay. Interesting. And yeah. In terms of the technology, you mentioned digitizing the KYC processes. What what does that what, what do you think banks generally don't have that they need to, to make that leap?
1: Uh, I think it. a lot of banks are dealing with an old system architecture that they've had in place for the longest mm. time. And that system has probably been in place since, oh, I don't know, decades. And mm. it's not really up to date anymore. And so it's important to to revamp it once in a while. I know it's a very difficult process. However, it really pays off. I've seen companies that have KYC solutions or processes in place that are compliant by design, mm-hmm. and that has really made their work a lot easier. In some cases, you can actually have the system automatically ask for data from the customer, mm-hmm. say, for example, IDs and data birth and whatnot, automatically yeah. every set period of time. So that really frees up a lot of your resources who don't have to focus on doing these manual work and just focus on the higher risk more difficult complex decisions
0: yeah okay interesting is so sort of the the boring bit right just sort of the communications the linking data not it doesn't actually have to be doing the investigation work where as we talked about earlier maybe you know people are still so key but uh clearing some of their their workload basically
1: yeah yeah just automate the processes that are as you say, boring, mm. and then you know, give your people more interesting work to do. I think that really helps with employee retention as well.
0: Yeah, I was speaking to a customer, a large bank, the other week, and they, they were sort of saying, actually, like when we we're talking about like things that like do on the roadmap, it's uh, they're always like, if you can just focus on the unsexy stuff, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what really kills us. So, as much as you might want to save the world, you've got to uh, sometimes just you know update addresses automatically or more easily is just as important, if not more important. So definitely resonates with my my recent experience out there speaking to, uh, to other practitioners. You talked about implementation, that being you know very difficult, very challenging, particularly to do at speed. If you are making a change, and I appreciate this will vary depending on the size of the change you're making to your process, but typically how long does it take to go from a new sanctions package is released to Okay, we've understood it, and now we've got a plan of how we want to deal with it, and now we want to implement this by the, by the time you sort of have the go live date, is there a typical period that takes for teams to turn around?
1: ah uh, it it really depends on the kinds of sanctions. So if it's just new names on the list, then mm. we can have that in there within twenty four or 48 hours, or yeah, or even less in some cases. But if it's something new or novel, then it would take a lot of time do we do they? if they go with a manual process maybe they can have something in place in a week if it's really rushed mm-hmm. or if they're looking to automate something then that's going to be a lot more complicated since you have to do coding mm-hmm. and then all the other things that comes with it and have to coordinate with so many different departments yeah
0: i mean what is that you then got the build by partner discussion right. as well. is, is this thing we can do with our own IT team? And Do we need a vendor? In which case, we need procurement to come in, uh, most likely. And we've talked a lot about banks actually, but if I could sort of make sure we talk about the other part, right? Because corporates have been massively affected as well. Professional services are, are caught, you know, are covered by the regulations as well. You know, lawyers, accountants. Um, you know, the governments themselves, the various departments that are making sure that they don't have, you know, uh, foreign direct investment. I've I've heard a lot about sort of being you know, really scrutinized now to make sure there isn't exposure. Um, is it the same or do you think there is a, a difference in how they think about what data they need, what technology they need, how how they can implement versus, versus banks?
1: I would say that historically there hasn't been as much of a, I guess, interest or push to have really good or com- comprehensive sanctions programs or systems in place for a lot of corporates or other professional or legal services firms. However, with the Russian sanctions and the prominence that that has had, as well as the reputational risks associated with doing business with such entities, there has definitely been an uptick in interest mm. in you know, revamping their sanctions and compliance programs to make sure that they have the proper controls in place. So, let's say, for example, in one of the recent packages, legal provision of IT, professional services, are, are actually restricted. And so it, it it's a rather new requirement for them. I think law firms, especially, were, you know, now they have to make sure that they do a, a better job than they have perhaps in the past. And, and yeah, it's been interesting seeing. The uptake and the uh, increase in risk appetite thus far.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to move on to a couple of uh, audience questions. So people Ready that you know knew that I was going to do this this particular topic and, and have said, "Hey, if you get the chance, could you could you ask these?" So um, I always like these because it means that if you don't like the question, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, The the first one uh, was, if this sort of situation, by which I I assume they mean, you know, uh, one country invades another or or violates sort of, you know, recognised international borders, if this happened again, then what would you suggest regulators or governments do differently that could make the impact of the sanctions, you know, more more meaningful, more effective so that hopefully, you know, a conflict would last? Would last a lot less time, or or could immediately end because the sanctions were so effective. Is it any sort of? I appreciate you're not in that position to make those calls, but just your reflections. If there's anything you feel that still could have been done better.
1: Well, I really, it's a really hard question. But thinking back, you you said if I were a regulator, what would I do? And I think you know, having worked in a regulatory affairs department, one of the, the difficult things that I've seen is that when these sanctions came out a lot of regulators immediately starting at started asking questions and saying hey, tell, tell me about your sanctions program what are you doing to address this and and I think that this wasn't exactly the right time to be doing that because currently compliance departments are flooded with a lot of work as I, I as I mm. mentioned earlier there's a lot of novel sanctions there's a lot of workloads and escalations involved um, so, to have to take time away from that and deal with questions on the side Mm -hmm. wasn't helpful. I think it would have been better if they had done sanctions or thematic inspections and reviews, and that's helpful, uh, but not everyone does that. And I think if a lot of regulators do that on a regular basis, then they wouldn't need to do what they did.
0: So it's more of a partnership with industry and sort of the, the rollout and understanding that as people are reacting, they, you know. There's going to be choices right if you've got the same number of people and the same tool set and you're working at capacity if you're doing something new you've got to stop doing something else is, it, is that again am i capturing what you're saying correctly
1: so from my perspective i think they should have started asking earlier about their regulated entities programs okay that way they don't bombard their institutions with so many questions about the state of their sanctions programs their aml programs and mm. how they're implementing sanctions at the time the conflict was escalating and the war was rolling out. It's not particularly helpful to the already very much overworked compliance staff.
0: There's sort of a more, I suppose, empathetic and more partner-based relationship between the the regulators and the, the industries that they are regulating so that they can sort of, you know, as you said earlier, the implementation is quite tough. So if they can be a bit more understanding and creating time and space to implement these things well, is that what you're sort of trying to get across?
1: Yeah, give give them space to implement it and then ask questions afterwards to make sure that they do it. I mean, they can send reminders at that point in time mm. and say, hey, you're supposed to be doing this, okay? And then we'll check up on you later.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's not a sort of free pass, but it is just creating a little bit of space for people to be able to get these, these new operational controls or internal controls in place. And then we can sort of review as, as things start to become more BAU
1: exactly yeah and i think another one that is helpful is to provide comprehensive guidance to the industry about how to implement those sanctions as well mm-hmm. like there's a dearth of what x and y in this specific regulations means mm-hmm. and in some cases it's strategic ambiguity they want it to be ambiguous and vague so that you you do what you think you have to do in that aspect. They yeah. don't want to cover each and every scenario. They want you to be to have room to make decisions. However, it it's also it, it's very unhelpful if you don't know what the right thing to do is in yeah. this in this case. It's, right? It's a
0: it's a really tough question. I've spoken to some people about this over the past six months, and the person that I think explained it to me best. Sort of said the problem is if you make the regulation very specific, then people will find loopholes in it. Oh yeah, definitely. And whereas if you keep it vague, then it can kind of apply to everything, but you also you're going to find some people that maybe misinterpret it. So it's kind of another one of these rock and hard places. Like which method do you take? Um, I don't know. if I I I, I certainly don't have the answer. I hope someone out there does, and they can come on the podcast and tell us all. But uh,
1: (laughs) yeah, I did find that issuing FAQs or frequently asked questions has Mm. been very helpful. So I think that's one way that they can help the industry comply with their regulations.
0: And do you think that's got better over the course of the past year because the sort of focus, scrutiny, pressure on this? Do you feel like sort of there's been, you mentioned sort of the development in all industries that have now, maybe even if they're not perfect, they've improved their sanctions programs. Do you feel the sort of um, the regulator side has actually improved? You know, maybe they're not, again, not perfect. Nobody is, but... um, have they improved their guidance, their FAQs, as you say? Has, has that sort of been a steady improvement?
1: I would say so. There has, like, it's, say, take it the case of the UK. Mm. Uh, there has, they have been issuing better guidance lately, or more guidance, I should say, in the US. I they, it's a fairly developed sanctions regime that they have, mm. and and so I think they've been doing that for years at this point in time. In the EU, there has definitely been more an increase in the staffing on, mm-hmm. on their side in order to address the, all the different issues and questions and implementation you know, matters that have come up. Yeah. However, it, it is not perfect because there's still room for growth. For some of them, their teams are relatively young. And there is also a I would say, a limited amount of resources and, and mm. experienced people who can do sanctions.
0: Yeah, or, or do sanctions well, I guess is the caveat. Let's flip it. So on the other question I got, um, yeah, which is it kind of provides a nice symmetry. So from the practitioner side, so we've just talked about what government regulators might do differently if they had, had this, I don't want to say opportunity, if, if they had this uh, situation again um, to respond to or a similar situation from the practitioner side, now they've had this experience, this, as you say, 10 or 100x workload and this stress. If in the future something like this happened again, then what do you think the industry should do differently from, I suppose, when I say industry, I mean practitioners, vendors, consultants, people that are trying to implement these programs to be as effective and both compliant and effective and efficient, right, is sort of the the holy trinity (laughs) for a sanctions program. Yeah, well
1: i think a lesson learned here is to not underinvest in your compliance programs that has been a, a sore spot in a lot of companies and that compliance is seen as a business prevention department but actually seeing them as a business enabler and being able to guide you to where you're supposed to go is the way to do it and then having really good processes and procedures in place is very helpful. That way, if something like this comes along, you already have a framework, a structure in place to deal with it. Of course, it might not be sufficient and you'd have to expand it in some cases, but at least having the the foundation, the basics down mm. is a very good start.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it's almost sort of, if you're just in a strong position already, it's going to be much easier to react to a situation that emerges and causes additional stress as opposed to you know, sort of being, oh, right, we'll, we'll wait until there's more scrutiny before we go hard.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, knowing, knowing, having a good sanctions program is in place is um, a good thing, as opposed to not even knowing what sanctions is and having to start from scratch yeah. when all these sanctions are rolling out is def- difficult.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've certainly heard it at conferences and I hope this is happening across the industries, you know, not just banking, but um, I always talked about sort of corporate businesses and, and professional services and, and all, all others, but it's um, really that this should be a board level issue. There should be board level visibility of like, what's our investment in, in the program, like how we perform in what's our effectiveness rate, et cetera. Those sort of stats that I know lots of people in our industry are very focused on kind of needs that bigger audience where the boards, the board and the CEO, CFO don't need to be experts, but they do need to have a, a good working knowledge of this. Um, so I if there's a silver lining, I kind of hope that that has come out from this year and that continues rather than it sort of just being because it's a hot topic. Yep. R- really, really interesting here. I, I'm going to start to to bring this to a close because I've got an eye on the clock and I know how important your time is and how many clients you're, you're helping. Um, but before I sort of do the, the sort of classic recommended resources that I normally try to have guests provide for our audience, is there anything else that you think is worth commenting on around the sort of the past year and sanctions, the sanctions ecosystem in general?
1: Yeah, I know we've been talking a lot about banks and corporations, but I'd also like to touch on cryptocurrency companies. There has been so many enforcement actions and designations coming out against cryptocurrency companies. In fact, one of the packages recently or semi-recently banned the provision of crypto wallets to Russian persons and residents regardless of the total value of the assets so previously it was capped at 10,000 euros but now they've done away with it altogether okay and you might have seen that a lot of enforcement actions uh, have been going out against cryptocurrency companies
0: and is that EU-wide the wallet restriction
1: yes EU-wide okay yeah
0: I haven't caught that that's fascinating
1: yeah, yeah. It's, it's been an interesting one. Uh, so watch that space. I think there's going to be a lot of developments there. There's also the oil price cap that was issued recently. So they they issued a cap, a price cap on how much they can buy oil from Russia from. Mm. Of course, in the EU, you're still not allowed to purchase Russian oil. But if a third country is doing that, and a uh, European country wants to facilitate that, if that if they comply with the price cap, then they can, of course, definitely do that, and that took effect uh, on December fifth, just last month, for crude oil, and fifth mm. of February coming up uh, for refined petroleum products. I think that this has definitely, you know, this has had the intended effect because I have heard reports that Russian oil is actually trading at below the cap. Okay, so yeah. it it's reduced the amount of profits.
0: So I've, I've heard that. Yeah, there are certain countries still doing trade uh, for particularly raw materials from from Russia, where you know raw yes. material heavy economy. But it, that that particular piece where they're putting price limits rather than just banning it outright is you're saying sort of does seem to be having the desired effect.
1: Yeah, it definitely is because it's leveraged by other parties in order to negotiate the price down. They Mm. say, oh, well, the Western world has capped at, I don't know, was it 60 or something like that. And so they're trading at lower than that at this point in time.
0: Okay. Really, really interesting. Well, a couple of extras uh, there, extra insights. Really appreciate that. If somebody wants to, you know, really go a bit deeper on sanctions, I hope we've given sort of a a fairly good high-level tour of the last year in, in this conversation. But if somebody wanted to go deeper, is there any... You know, whether it's white papers or websites or other podcasts or anything really, any resources you would point people to that want to make sure that their knowledge is up to date here?
1: Yeah, well, from my legal perspective, I always want to go to the primary source, Mm. so I would go to the regulations itself. OFAC has really good guidance as Mm. well as OFSI, or that's the UK Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. And, of course, the EU, too. But other than those primary sources, I would say that there's a lot of blogs out there. EU sanctions blog is particularly helpful, something I follow on a regular basis. Mm. There's also a number of other... Providers out there. I used to have Google alerts on, but that has been going through the roof, uh, <laughs> so it's been filtered to a separate folder now. Um, let's see what else. I would say just generally reading the news helps as well, because what mm. happens in, in the headlines today actually translates to sanctions in the future, if not today.
0: Okay, fascinating. Well, we'll certainly get the links for anyone that doesn't know where to get the official primary source. We'll make sure they're linked in the show notes. Uh, we'll also yeah. get the blog that you mentioned and. Shameless self plug: We did do a sanctions mini series last year, and I think a lot of the content, particularly episodes two, three, and four, probably holds up. Touches on ownership, touches on control, touches on networks, and and crypto as well. Um, although I think the crypto situation has really evolved since then, per, per your comments here. So we'll provide some some links back there for anyone that hasn't didn't get a chance to listen last year. Hopefully, there's some some learnings from the the guests we had twelve months ago. But yeah, with with that, Hera, I'll just say thanks so much for your time, your expertise. Thank you so much for joining Moody's as well in in your role. We're really very grateful to have you um, working with our product teams and and clients. And uh, yeah.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Alec.
0: A lot of ground covered there with Hera, and I hope everyone took something away. For me, I think we can reflect that whilst everything can be done better with hindsight, there has been an increasing pressure applied on Russia through the sanctions programs of the US, the EU, and the UK, as well as other countries from around the world. To keep up, and most importantly, to be effective, practitioners need the data, the tools, the right people, and also the time to implement the right processes and controls. Whilst the workload on these professionals is unprecedented, it is also incredibly worthwhile and sanctions programs now have to be a permanent part of the board level conversation across all industries. If you enjoyed this episode, have a topic or question you'd like us to cover or raise with guests, then please connect with me on LinkedIn and ping me your suggestions. They're all gratefully received. Until next time, thank you for listening and a big thank you again to Hera for joining us and to producers Caroline Waters and Mark Rundle. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting
1: moody's.com podcasts.